Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We have an amazing guest this week, an author who wrote a book that's really going to challenge the way you look at things, because there's a lot of ingrained kind of paradigm programming that we all have to deal with. This book is going to challenge you. This amazing author is here. Her name is Deborah Eden Tull. And she's going to talk about her book, Luminous Darkness, which is all about understanding what the dark is, embracing it, unifying with it in a way. And we're going to talk to her in just a second. But before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find the legendary Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the market, period. And why is that? It is because the extraction method, how the CBD is extracted from the hemp flower is a proprietary process. It's called the HIT extraction method, and it contains no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was used in the creation of this wonderful product. It was developed by a man named Howard Hitt, a.k.a. Big H, and it's a family-owned business. Howard is 76 years old, and he's an incredible guy. And there are three styles, maximum strength, King Cobra, regular strength, little King Cobra, and wild thing CBD for pets because we want our pets to have the highest quality medicine. And we have a discount code. This gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. And that code is big H B I G and the letter H again gets you free shipping and there's a money back guarantee for some reason. If you do not like the product, you get to keep the product you get your money back. And if you had to pay shipping, you get that money back too. So if you try this, it's a complete win-win because when you realize how much it helps you, you're going to love it. And if for some reason, I'm not sure why nobody's ever used it before, but if for some reason you don't like it, you can keep it and you get your money back. And of course, Howard is available to talk to on his website, bluecobracbd.com. You can reach out to him directly and learn more about this. So go there, people, get a bottle, tell me about it, send me an email, send me your success story as so many have. BlueCobraCBD.com. That is BlueCobraCBD.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at Midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. If you can follow me there, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click that button that connects us 
So you know exactly what's going on. You get a notification to your device instantly when these incredible guests come on covering these incredible topics, you know about it and then you can listen. And most importantly, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts that would be interested in learning about luminous darkness, this darkness that we all live with. Bring them here. You know them. Midnightonearth.com. Okay, so we're going to talk to Eden. She goes by Eden, her author name. Her full name is Deborah Eden Toll, but we're going to talk to Eden in just a second. But now I'm going to read her bio. Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, author, activist, and sustainability educator, Eden teaches the integration of compassionate awareness into every aspect of our lives. She spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery and has been teaching Dharma for 19 years. Eden has also been living in and teaching about sustainable communities for over 25 years. Her teaching style is grounded in compassionate awareness, experiential learning, inquiry, and an unwavering commitment to personal transformation. She teaches engaged awareness practice, which emphasizes the connection between personal awakening and global engagement. Eden draws upon teachings from the natural world and an embodied understanding of animism. She's the author of Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourself, each other, and our planet. The Natural Kitchen, your guide for the sustainable food revolution and her work has been featured in the Los Angeles times tricycle Yogi times goop Shambhala times and the ecologist. She also teaches the work that reconnects a program created by Buddhist scholar, Joanna Macy and teaches for UCLA's mindful awareness research center. Eden offers retreats, online courses, and consultations internationally. And of course, we're going to talk about that more uh, at the end. And she's here with us now. Hello, Eden. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here with you, Jake. Thank Yay. you for inviting me on. <laughs> well, you wrote an incredible book, Luminous Darkness, which is your newest book. And like I was saying in the intro, it gets you to think about things in a different way. It's about yeah. endarkment. So let's tell people what is endarkment. Sure. Well, this was a really beautiful and enjoyable and transformative for me book writing process. Uh, it took courage, uh, risk taking to write a book about darkness. And I feel that now on the other side, I find myself in a community of people. There are some other writers and speakers out there sort of speaking about similarly the the medicine of darkness the teacher of darkness which is very different than the way that the dominant paradigm perceives and defines darkness so i'll start there that we tend to perceive darkness as the absence of light and we put everything that we want to reject that we don't understand that's difficult that's uncomfortable in the category of darkness right right 
And yet when we look to nature as teacher and also to our human experience with honesty, we can recognize that darkness is one half of our experience, that darkness is one half of nature and consciousness. And when we look out into history, we can see that there are wisdom traditions across the globe that have celebrated darkness as an instigator of spiritual growth, as carrying divine teachings, as an ally rather than something to fear and to reject. So I'll pause in case there's anything you want to add in there. (laughs) Well, the thing is, is that people do, in a general sense, classify darkness as something bad. What you're saying is that darkness is equal to light because it shows up naturally and it has a purpose and has a function. And if we can engage with it and understand it, it's going to help us become more full as individuals and, and as a species. Yes. And that especially in this day and age, given we're facing the collective unknown, uncertainty greater than any of our ancestors faced, I propose it's clearly time to turn toward the wisdom of darkness and what darkness has to teach us rather than try to cling to the light. And also for anyone listening who's on the spiritual path, uh, you know through direct experience that the path is about letting go of the familiar shore and what we hold with certainty and venturing into, we might say, the dark unknown. (laughs) And so... That's for for all of us, no matter what walk of life we are as humans, we could just say navigating the unknown, which darkness represents the mystery, the unknown is part of our experience. Yeah, definitely. And in a sense, we could be like in a superposition where we're not necessarily dark or light. We're just kind of observing. We're above it and realizing the value in each part of it, because it seems like it's been suppressed and categorized by religion as something very evil, but it does relate to enlightenment in some way. You're thinking enlightenment and endarkment. It's like the same half of the complete experience or the other half of the complete experience. Yes, well, one of the things I offer in the book is just an invitation for people to explore what has been the full impact of this long held historical bias against dark towards light. And we could start by looking within. Many people have demonized their own shadows or difficult emotions or aspect of themselves instead of embraced and welcomed into wholeness. Many people um, have can recognize the connection between racism and xenophobia and othering humans who get put in this category of yes. different and dark. It reflects on I'll say a little bit more because well, there's so much I could say here. (laughs) It reflects on a focus and real um, fetishizing of speed and productivity and the active or yang muscle of existence as opposed to the yin, dark, slower, um, the unformed as opposed to the visible. And in our culture today, I mean, the dominant paradigm is obsessed with productivity. This is just an impact of capitalism and individualism. And I I was having the conversation just yesterday with a group of people I guide of just recognizing a deeper need for rest now and for restoration as more of a focus in our lives rather than this just focus on bright lights and speed, right? (laughs) So (laughs) when it comes to endarkenment and enlightenment, um, you know, 
I've been on the spiritual path and teaching for a long time and have noticed that even there, there can be an assumption that enlightenment is an end and a goal when it is neither. So again, the sense of need to push away the dark and attain the light, get to the light, or I need to go up, up, up and away from my body and the deeper, darker undercurrents of my experience to reach the light. And, you know, if we're going to be honest, we can notice how this has pulled us into a lot of spiritual bypassing, a lot of um, attempting transcendence rather than embodiment and wholeness. There's yes. a lot of things I could say I, here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful what you're saying. I just, um, I think that a lot of that speeding up and the productivity and the energy behind that, I think, and this is just my opinion, a lot of it has to do with the fact that as a planet, as a being, the humans, our frequency is raising. And as our frequency raises, our vibration raises. And when we're vibrating faster, time moves faster. So I think that people are adjusting to this new form of time and they feel like they can't rest because time's moving so fast and it actually is moving faster as we collectively ascend that, that we have to just keep pushing forward. What are your thoughts about that? I'm curious, though, I would say, don't you also or do you recognize the presence of just a long held bias in humanity that's about we need to produce, we need to effort, we need to do more, bigger, yes. better, faster, more is an expression of, I would say, capitalism and individualism and this fixation with the light rather than what you're pointing to, which is something more uh, conscious and something that has more to do with spiritual growth, right? So maybe it's the both and. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking maybe subconsciously, maybe that's why people are feeling that, like they're not even aware about the ascension and the frequencies and the things that are happening in the world, but they're just noticing that time, the clock is spinning significantly faster than it used to. That's just my thinking on that. I'm, I'm not really sure how others think about it, but that's just kind of what came to me intuitively is, is why, that is. But with endarkment, though, I mean, we're not talking about engaging in low frequency behavior. We're just talking about essentially like shadow work where you're analyzing, acknowledging and developing a relationship which the things with the things that you classified as darker. Is that correct? Well, I would offer this. There's many dimensions uh, to the teachings of darkness in this book. So for instance, shadow work, which for me actually doesn't have to do with analysis, but more embodied inquiry is one aspect of endarkment. But in my book, I talk about five aspects of endarkment. And the first is our awakening through, again, I'll use the word embodiment and earth connection, because I genuinely feel that we've become deeply anthropocentric, deeply human-centered, yes. which is another expression of egocentricity is, humans, uh, is anthropocentricity. And also what Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Andrew Holacek calls wake-centricity, fixated on the day and the world of bright lights, the human invented world and who we are in the domain of day conscious mind. Is this making sense so yes, far? Yes, that's like the matrix. That's the human created matrix, that you artificial world. 
You got it. And in Buddhism, we sometimes point to that as the relative world. We live in with one foot in the relative and one foot in the absolute. But we are forgetting the absolute. <laughs> so the the next piece is about the restoration of our ability to see clearly with the heart by surrendering to receptivity and taking responsibility for the lens through which we're perceiving. And I'm not just talking about the organ of the heart, though it's a deeply intelligent organ of relational intelligence, but more the, the heart of our being, our core. And you pointed to this earlier in your own way, but when we quiet the mind of discrimination and labeling and hierarchical perception, which means light versus dark, good versus bad, right versus wrong, better versus worse, we're able to see all of life as sacred and we're able to see clearly rather than with that overlay. That's an overlay of the conditioned mind. Uh, it's not our original consciousness to perceive through that kind of duality. So I'll pause. Is this resonating so far? Yes, definitely. You? No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that is not our natural state, the duality. That's absolutely true. We are meant to learn something from it, but this is something that a lot of my guests talk about is that we're moving past that. We're moving into a new form, I guess, of duality because we're still going to be individual from source, but just existing in a completely different way. Well, in practice, we often talk about the, the both and, and that we are, yes, individuals and individuals who are completely part of the expression of the living matrix of life. But for most people in the dominant paradigm, there's far too much of an um, orientation towards separate self. And separate self means I'm standing outside of life, looking in, seeing everything as subject object. So this is a, a healing of that and really learning how to, let me use this metaphor for a moment. You know, even when we just close our eyes and in the book, I include a lot of experiential practices and meditations, even just by closing our eyes and softening the active gaze, there's a way in which some of our other senses open and become stronger. There's a greater capacity for listening and feeling and sensing our experience of life. So this is also a teaching of getting out of the head, which discriminates and perceives separation and into the heart of our being. Yeah, definitely. And you said in your book that darkness helps us realize our place in the universe. And I think that that yes. does do that because then you're separating, you're then just becoming that conduit of consciousness. You've got it. Yeah. And I, I talk about how, you know, it's only modern humans who have spent this little time in physical darkness. So the book talks about physical, symbolic, metaphoric darkness. But right now we have over 60% of the globe is experiencing over lighting uh, of yes. the earth. Too and much light, over, too much artificial light. You talked about it a lot too in your much. book. And over 90% of uh, Europe and the US. And yet humans lived on the planet for 600,000 years before we even discovered how to make fire. <laughs> and even in the year 1925, only half of the US had dependable electricity. So I just kind of am curious about, wow, with that much more time under the night sky and uh, under the stars and just in darkness in perhaps a more peaceful relationship to darkness, 
that had to have cultivated more wonder and respect for the mystery. Definitely. More humility. Yeah. hundred percent. Because if you think about it, I mean, I'm sure you've had these experiences. I know you have actually, cause you detailed some of them in your book, but when you're just with space, you're just with the universe that opens you up. There's actually a biochemical reaction. You're talking about dopamine and serotonin. These things actually happen when you get into that state and those incredibly profound, almost out of this world moments, you bring some of that back. And then you're a different person. It probably really helped stabilize humanity as we developed in kind of a wild environment over that time. Yes. And it puts us in touch with the spaciousness within and out. It puts us more in touch with not a fixed sense of self, but this spacious, (laughs) fluid, uh, shared being. So just two more points about endarkenment before we go further. Um, actually three more points, the reclamation of our true nature or original consciousness by releasing hierarchical perception. And we've touched on it, but just really inviting people to acknowledge that all hierarchical perception is a distortion in consciousness. (laughs) There's no exception. Humanity uh, invented hierarchy and it's been passed down, right? This is something that I wanted to ask you about because I, this was in your book quite a bit, but I, I, when I was reading it, I was understanding it, but then I was just thinking about, and I want to ask you about this. I was thinking about what about hierarchies in the animal kingdom? Lions are very hierarchical chickens. I've had chickens. They have a pecking order that seems to be ingrained in their DNA. What about those situations? Well, what I think about is nature as cyclical and as containing the full spectrum. And so even if there is hierarchy in terms of the lion and the little ones who the lion consumes, um, the lion is also um, in a process of uh, not being here eternally. (laughs) The the microbial uh, world, as far as I can tell, is top of the hierarchy for everything on the earth, whether it's soil health we're talking about, or humans and gut health, and they're teeny tiny. So I think if we looked with a magnifying glass at the perceived hierarchies in nature, we would see a ton more nuance. Does that uh, make sense? Oh yes. And then, and we and see, then again, yeah. we're still putting it through that same filter of perception and understanding and awareness. We're seeing it as a hierarchy because that's what we're used to and we're comparing it to, but maybe it's just yeah. not that way. There's nuances. Like you said, there's other layers that create uh, different information that could change the understanding. Well, there's nuance and that everything is part of the life cycle. Everything experiences the process of birth and death and decomposition and creation again. So I, again, I think it's much more nuanced. I see. But But as humans, yes, we're wrapped up in hierarchy. There was no doubt about it. As I was reading your book, I was like, oh my God, because it really gets you to think about that in all aspects of life. We've created some form of hierarchical system. Yes. And even there's an exercise of just inviting people to, for 24 hours, just pay attention to your own mind. Many of you listening meditate already and you're paying attention, but get out a journal and just write down some notes about the different forms hierarchical perception takes place. Wake up and there's clouds in the sky instead of just being with that. 
instead of being with life, we have to bring in the conditioned overlay of that's bad or that's great. <laughs> that's better. That's worse. We judge ourselves and others that way. And just one more point about it to make is it's a habit of labeling and assessing and trying to understand life through the rational mind as almost an addiction instead of sensing dropping down into our bodies to a deeper source of intelligence that isn't already judging and labeling and comparing it's a more i would suggest respectful way to be with the mystery and to embody our place here and it's completely freeing because the habit of judging and assessing and comparing and measuring is pretty exhausting well if you're thinking about infinite love and infinite love doesn't do any of those things. And as a spiritual person, I personally see the mystery as infinite love. So then by doing that, you're then resonating with higher frequencies. You're existing in a more authentic way, closer to the divine. Yes. Beautifully put. You got it. And is that rational mind thinking though, you're saying it's an addiction, but could it also be a survival mechanism? Like in the world, the wild world of animals and various things that we went through as humans uh, before our great age of technology, perhaps that was placed in that, the defining everything, define, define, define. Perhaps that was there because we needed to survive. And then maybe the addiction came afterwards once survival was established. Yes. And I think there's a strong relationship between some of our survival strategies overall <laughs> and addiction because we end up feeling a bit addicted to them. Right. Yes. And so, for instance, even in my own life, there was a moment early on in my meditation practice where I realized, oh, my gosh, I think I'm addicted to thinking. And I actually think it's actually a survival strategy I've created to get away from my body because here's where all the discomfort and emotions and grief and messiness of being human and what's happened in my life lives. So climbing up the ladder into our heads. But I think there's a couple other really significant historical occurrences. And, you know, there's a lot of historical evidence of wisdom traditions and land-based and indigenous cultures that lived through holism rather than the lens of separation and that lived and practiced more of an integration of the body mind and then comes along this great disconnect from the natural world that begins to happen in the agricultural revolution and then we see the impact of the Cartesian era, which still impacts us today in our psyche, the 18th century age of enlightenment, which was complete celebration of rational mind, and during which anyone practicing what was considered the darker spiritual paths or arts, body-based, earth-based practices that involved the invisible realm rather than the visible, those folks were burned at the stake, <laughs> right? I know. And the number that you had in your book actually blew me away. I knew that it was a significant amount of people. I didn't realize it was in the millions. Yes. Yes. And there's a great uh, film people can find called The Burning Times that goes into some of this. But I feel that we're really still impacted by some of that in our collective psyche today. Definitely. So the, the fourth uh, aspect of endarkment is about the deepening of our relationship with others and ourselves and our intercommunicative relationship with nature, the visible and invisible matrix with life. Just, 
inviting us into more relational forms of knowing that we can only access through our bodies and not through the rational mind that's labeling and categorizing things. But these pathways already exist within us. And we're certainly, there's so many different spiritual practices that are helping people to embody these now. And the last one I'll name is just the willingness to meet all of life, including shadows with fierce compassion. And you mentioned shadow work earlier in our call. So, you know, when we're fixated on light, it's far too easy when something difficult or uncomfortable arises to want to push it away in this category, call it dark, and then I can turn away from it. I can judge it, but I am not willing to bring it in to integration and healing. And we need so much of this healing today. Yes. And yeah. I noticed that in your book, I thought it was so cool. And I wrote down turning anger into fierce compassion. That's such a great way to shift that energy because we do need a lot of embodiment right now. And that's, I think, uh, what a lot of endarkenment is and what your book's about is training yourself to embody these things that you've experienced during your journey of enlightenment. Like you said, it's, it's never a fixed destination, but in that never ending journey of enlightenment, you have to embody this, the information and the things that you've learned. And that is a form of endarkenment. Yes, we cannot get there through just cognitive understanding or philosophizing. And just on that point you made about anger, anger is a great example of an emotion that oftentimes people on the spiritual path will judge as bad or wrong or this isn't what I'm supposed to be experiencing in my <laughs> spiritual practice. And yet if we, and I share a personal story about this in the book, if we're willing to acknowledge that we're part of the natural feedback system of planet Earth and of our ancestors and that there's anger, especially anger on behalf of our collective, on behalf of life now, uh, on behalf of the loss of living systems that's already occurred, that we need to feel and metabolize and welcome rather than push away and that that becomes a tremendous source of an inner fire to inspire us to compassionate action to inspire us to show up more wholeheartedly um i find it fascinating that you know sometimes people on the spiritual path get focused on trying to be nice instead of trying to be kind instead of recognizing the kindness ah, that can take all kinds of different forms. That's we a little more need... authentic, I think, is the kindness, right? Thank you. A lot more authentic. <laughs> and sometimes from kindness, we need to set boundaries, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and that's okay. That energy, you talk about this in your book a lot from your Buddhist experiences. It's just learning to have a relationship with it, to give it a place to exist without condemning it and locking it up and putting it somewhere where you're not engaging it at all, because then it just festers. And it's like a battery attracting more of that energy. Absolutely. And that everything we push away or push down, um, we're, you know, locking into a place of isolation instead of acknowledging the sacred messenger of what 
our shadows carry or the yes. sacred messenger of a really difficult emotion that we actually really need to be with to unlock our recognition of the compassion that's inside of us. And oftentimes we're pushing down that energy that's uncomfortable. You know, it's like this. We've really become good at numbing out to life, yes. sometimes numbing out in the name of spiritual practice instead of being willing to fully embody Eros, life force, the full spectrum of light and dark. This is the full spectrum of our, our power. And when I say power, I mean shared power, which I yes. talk about in the book not power over. <laughs> and we are programmed to numb the darkness. And you called that in your book, Sun Shining, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. I grew up in the city of LA and I talked <laughs> about first experiencing it there and then noticing that it's happening all over the place, a kind of tendency to sunshine and keep things light, keep things positive, keep things surface, kind of keep it up. And so much richness is down below <laughs> that we're avoiding if we're caught in sunshine. We love the light, but we also can love the darkness. The darkness, historically, in many wisdom traditions, is considered the mother. It's the restorative shade of a tree. It's the uh, field of all possibility of fertile emptiness from which all creativity arises, all insight, all revelation, all vision. It's a fertile field. It's infinite. And so if we're going to avoid the darkness, we're missing out on a lot. And like you said, several religious traditions and other spiritual traditions have darkness training, you could say, have like some yes. sort of teachings where they focus on what you're talking about. Absolutely. There are darkness retreats, and that's part of my field of experience. Uh, and in the Tibetan Dogen tradition, I talk about examples from the Lakota Sioux, from Africa, the Dagara tribe and Maladoma Some, from the Shinto, uh, it could go on and on from European shamanism. Um, it's everywhere. All it's over everywhere. the human experience, essentially, wherever there's humans that are deeply involved in some spirituality, they're practicing, practicing this because it's an authentic part of the experience. You got it. Yeah. yeah. And there's peoples um, that I've read about in ancient Egypt and Africa who spent so much time under the dark night skies, turning to the dark night skies for guidance and literally tracking the sky in their societies for not hundreds, but thousands of years. Oh, yeah. So you think about the Mayan culture. I mean, you're, you got it. Yeah. You know, 26,000, yeah. Baktun, 26,000 years. I mean, there's a lot of history there. And, and just imagine you talked about overlighting in your book and just imagine, and maybe you've been there at certain parts of the world where it's just, there's so little, artificial light coming from these devices and various things that you can see three-dimensionally into space. I know that when I'm been to places that are very, very, very dark, very away from cities, things like that, uh, constellations, stars, they have a three-dimensional presence. It's not as flat as it is in, in, in a cityscape. Absolutely. And I would suggest that the darkness itself also has what we might call a three-dimensional presence. You know, I'm a um, 
practitioner of animism and very simply put, animism acknowledges that everything is alive and everything carries consciousness, even that things like darkness. And so this book is very much about the consciousness of darkness. Again, the yin still restorative field, the, the field of emptiness. Um, where I live now, beautifully, it's perfectly dark at night and, and I love it. And um, I would point people to check out, I think it's called the Dark Sky Organization. They're doing a lot of work to protect dark skies because the overlighting, the artificial lights, not only impacts human health and our endocrine system and studies have been done on all of this, but the plant world, the animal world, it's, it's not natural. It's not helpful. We need, and all biological life needs both light and dark. Yes. We, it's nothing that we've evolved with over millennia and neither have any of the organisms on this planet. There may be a chance in like, you know, a few million years, perhaps everything will evolve with its environment, but it doesn't have to be that way. We want to honor the natural aspects of the world and not just push them away. Like we push away the darkness. And you're saying that that pushing away of the darkness in our collective consciousness, kind of the mainstream consciousness was programmed through our hierarchical understandings. These religions and placing things in that way is how we classified light and dark. And then we said dark was the lower part and we should ignore yes. it. Yes, it's Ugh. absolutely not natural to us, not our true nature to push away darkness. Um, in my book, I talk about Zoroastrianism as the yes. very first religion that divided things into two and kind of created this system of good versus bad and, and everything followed suit. But, you know, when we're resting in presence, when we're in spacious awareness, when we're what I would say home, connected with essence, uh, we are present and open to all that is, not locked in a mind that's judging and pushing away half of existence. Yes. So. <laughs> so how would you then, let's talk about this, how would you describe darkness? Like if you were trying to explain this to someone, because obviously there are some low frequency behaviors that people define as darkness that we you know, wouldn't want to ever partake in things like murder and exploitation and things like that. But what would you define as like healthy darkness that, that we can integrate? Sure. So I think of darkness as multidimensional and this luminous darkness that I've written this book about. But one of the dimensions of darkness is the field of absolute rest, restoration, the yin, still, spacious, quiet aspect of nature, as opposed to the yang, loud, speedy, productive. So think about the resting as opposed to the active. So think about the womb for a moment, the darkness of the womb, where for nine months, the embryo beautifully rests, supported by darkness and develops and grows. And then at the time of birth, that same womb turns that 
turns into the most active, young muscle of force, badass muscle, active <laughs> element to allow this birth to happen. We need both yin and yang. And I would suggest that in our world, we're in the dominant paradigm, I want to be clear, is pretty imbalanced where strength and rightness is seen as yang, active, forceful, that's considered power, but yin and quietude, stillness, uh, even looking at the seasons, the incubation and gestation of nature is seen as secondary to the productivity of <laughs> spring and summer, right? So there's a lot we could say about it. And darkness is also in my uh, definition, which I invite people to experientially get to in the book, uh, the unknown, the mystery, the unformed, again, the darkness from which everything arises, in which we arise and to which everything and we will return. And we have such an interesting relationship to the unknown, to the mystery. So I offer meditations about this in the book, because again, no matter what walk of life we are, we are navigating the unknown as humans. Yes. And in your book, you say, endarkment reveres the mystery as the seat of life's intelligence rather than a burden to bear and fear. I thought that was so cool. Yes. Yes. And, you know, my core practice is Zen. And one of the teachings I love in Zen is, well, two all names that are relevant. One is beginner's mind completely dropping the sense of mind of the expert. I need to know and understand and be the expert. And instead, what's the wisdom of emptying and becoming just the beginner in childlike wonder, open and curious to life. Open and curious is the only way to navigate the mystery. If you're walking through a thicketed dark forest without a brightly lit labeled pathway to follow, you have to sense and intuit and feel your way through in beginner's mind. You with me? Definitely. And it also seems like that darkness is the zero point. It seems like you're talking about this, this zero point from which all potential and possibility can spring. Absolutely. And so if we're avoiding the darkness, we're avoiding the field of all possibility. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes in creative projects, people want to get to the end goal or get through this fast or, but allowing ourselves to spend as much time in emptiness, in the dark, in the not knowing. And that's the other teaching from Zen I wanted to name was the teaching of not knowing, learning how to rest in the mind of not knowing as a wise choice. Yes, yes. So the rational mind just wants to, again, define, 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 right? But you have you to rest it. in that not knowing. But what about like people thinking that they're hearing this, you know, they're hearing our conversation or thinking like, okay, well, I'm kind of rude to this one person. I treat this person at my work like total shit, but that's okay because that's just my, my dark side. I just have to embrace that. Now that's not correct, right? Well, that's spiritual bypassing. Oh, <laughs> we can call it what it is. Okay. Um, so spiritual bypassing, of course, just for listeners who might not know, is when we use a spiritual teaching or spiritual practice to justify turning away from, we might say, our work. <sighs> to justify turning away from rolling up our sleeves and investigating shadow, shadow <laughs> tend to be 
those aspects of our being that are in, al- in alignment with how we see ourselves or want to be perceived. Yeah. So we use that as an excuse then to just live on and uh, in, in what we perceive as a functional way, but it's actually dysfunctional. I keep hearing spiritual bypassing a lot and it did come up right in the beginning of your book and then later. And it's really interesting. I've never really had anyone explain it to me the way you just explained it to me. And that makes the most sense. Like you're using these understandings to just push aside what you need to deal with that's not correct. That's a way to put it. And here's something for people to consider is, you know, everything on the spiritual path is steeped in compassion, not compassion as a concept, but this deep, fundamental compassion that exists within each and every one of us. And we need to uncover and remember this source of compassion as we walk our path. When we turn away from, let's say, the opportunity to investigate a shadow, or when we turn away from something that makes us uncomfortable, we totally miss the opportunity to turn towards with curiosity and compassion that thing and to then in the mirror of that experience recognize how solid and strong our compassion is. It strengthens our compassionate presence. So, you know, there's no need to go into like analyzing our shadows per se, but learning to meet everything that hasn't been brought into wholeness with compassion is, as far as I can tell, one of the imperatives of this time. It's incredibly beautiful work. Well, it seems like when you meet it, you disarm it. Thank you. You disarm it. You listen deeply to it. You get to befriend it. There's a chapter in the book called Befriending the Night. And you get to see what is the need not being met for this part of me or for this uh, ancestral wound that's happened. Uh, So, yeah. yeah. All really powerful stuff we're talking about. This is amazing. And you even go into the invisible realm as you talk about the various things that we're touching on here. You talk about how the invisible realm is real. And this is something that I learned uh, from Carl Jung was that he also believed that fantasy has energy. Like anything that has energy attached to it is alive. It's created. Yes, this points back to animism, that everything is alive, both that which we can see and touch and that which doesn't so much have form, like darkness itself. But I talk about in a chapter about the role of the dreamer in collective awakening, the role of dreams. Again, if we are pushing away darkness and just focused on trying to get through the light as to the light as the lamp of knowledge and rational mind and who we are in the daytime. We're forgetting this whole domain of the uh, subconscious, the dreamer, the imaginal, the intuitive, uh, our partnership with nature that we experience through symbol and things beyond just cognitive perception. And so I talk about both the importance of nighttime dreaming, and there are all kinds of practices people can engage in to work in a healing way with dreams. I share some examples in my book, but also the role of the dreamer in the daytime, just acknowledging that, uh, well, Buddhism acknowledges that uh, this is all 
maya, a dream, and delusion. We're waking up from the stories, the very limited dream that we've created as a collective, the inner narrative, and waking up both to what's real and meeting what's real with a commitment to being fully here and fully alive. And at the same time, taking the next step of can we dream together from a present place? Can we dream together a more life affirming world? Because we're so creative if we're willing to spend more time in the dark. Yeah. Wow. So the embracing this and, and getting in touch with that aspect of yourself it heals you. And then again, you're saying it will heal humanity that because the, what the individual is experiencing, of course, we're experiencing collectively and that's what's happening in humanity right now. We're not complete. And this helps us complete ourselves and move towards a united earth because this is something we talk about a lot with our guests. We are moving towards this beautiful new earth, but there's action that needs to be taken to make it happen. The new earth, that beautiful place where all people are together and in love with each other is very real. It's there, but the time it takes to get there is all determined on the actions that we're all willing to take. And if we can take control of our creative manifestation ability, our dreaming, then we can co-create that reality that truly we all want as humans, I believe. I would add just a couple of uh, nuances to that. Sure. One, that so many of our creations in the past as humans have ended up being ego-based or egocentric. So can we, and again, through this notion of endarkenment and a deeper listening to our ability to partner with nature and um, receive guidance from other forms of life, can we co-create with nature beyond mm. our our egos. That's been yes. something that's got us again and again. Because it is a um, co-creative experience with not just the humans, with the planet, with the other creatures that are here, the other life forms and everything together. Yes. And if there are any listeners for whom this feels a bit uh, out there, you know, go sit <laughs> no, outside. Not our listeners. Not our listeners. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. But just in case, just in case. You know, anyone of us can go sit outside for a period of time in silence, can get still. That means listen a little more deeply than the loud narrative in your head. And as soon as you do, you recognize that the entire cosmos is speaking to you all the time. It's wanting conversation and collaboration. But if we're stuck in our heads, we just can't get there. Yeah. <sighs> And is that yeah. what you talk about is the we consciousness or moving towards the we consciousness where we're away from the us and them and we are just together? Yes, um, not as something we have to attain or work hard for. One of the things that I teach, actually, my weekly meditation group is called Remembering the Already Awakened State. And I want to bring up a point that something I've witnessed. I witnessed it both in myself in early years as a meditator and in people I've taught is that through the pursuit of enlightenment, which we again sometimes think is an end and a goal, there's a notion that we need to be the solo heroic spiritual warrior trying to push away the dark and get to the light. A lot of work going into our practice and this points also to a way that if people pay attention closely, they can notice 
a collective habit of using effort because we're obsessed with, um, I'm going to say the active, the yang element, doing instead of just being. When we rest, when we simply stop doing and rest in presence, we rest in shared presence. The I that's busy doing and that's perceiving itself as separate from life dissolves. Many listeners know this experience well. And what's left is the already existing we consciousness or shared presence, the experience of that field. But we have to be open. We have to be listeners to feel that field. It's not, uh, you know, it's the place I talk about the extraordinary nature of ordinary self because it's also an absolutely ordinary state. This place, this backdrop of interconnection, it's, it's always here. It's already here. We, it never leaves us, but we leave it, right? Yes, and it contains kind of all knowledge and everything. <laughs> that the universe is made of. It is truly the divine. And as you get into your endarkenment and understanding it, it, you understand that there is a divine darkness and this divine darkness can offer a map as we collectively navigate the unknown, as you said in your book. Yes. And it's a, a map, almost a map that has to do with deep listening and inner vision. So if we're focused on what we see, and again, the relative world or visual world and the human world, we're not tuning into uh, deeper forms of knowing, relational forms of knowing. Our relational intelligence is profound. It's we are each an instrument for relational intelligence beyond anything most of us have been taught growing up. And receptivity, again, our ability to stop doing and rest in just being in presence is how that relational intelligence shows itself <laughs> to uh, us. Yeah. And we grow yeah. so much from that. And also it seems like it's a way to learn through your suffering, whatever you went through in your life, it's a way to transmute that and understand 100%. Yes. And so let's go back to we consciousness for yes. a moment or shared presence. We don't just practice to rest in that place and know that place because that place is home, but also to then engage in the world, in the messy, sticky world, engage with our internal world of emotions that need healing and trauma that needs healing from that field of shared presence of we consciousness. It's a field and we experience it as, as this way that leaves nothing out, that welcomes everything, that just when we sit in meditation, we access that kind of stillness that is not discriminating. Oh, I like this emotion and I hate this one. And then from that place, I'll share this because I teach leadership, regenerative leadership and spiritual activism. We can then roll up our sleeves and from stillness rather than reactivity or ego, we can go into a really important healing conversation with someone or a really heated meeting of activists to actually step into collaboration through shared presence instead of I versus you. We can bring it into conflict. And I have had incredible life experiences showing up to intense conflict 
resting in we consciousness. So it's not a bypass. We don't want to bypass. We want to roll up our sleeves and show up to the messy, sticky world of human relating <laughs> with this quality of presence in order to let heal what wants to be healed. Yeah. Yes. And that seems to be also responding versus reacting. You're responding from your heart, your heart's intelligence, your divine connection. That's where you're coming from when you're dealing with, like you said, potentially intense situations. You're responding and not reacting. Yes. Conscious response rather than unconscious reactivity. You got it. <laughs> I'm learning so much from you right now. This is such an incredible conversation and people are going to learn from us together, which is so cool. It's a fun topic, isn't it? I just want to say this <laughs> interesting uh, fact, you know, even our, in our language, the way that we, we use darkness, we've labeled the middle ages, the dark ages, and we think of them as kind of sinister and backwards, but they were only called the dark ages because very little was known. Yeah, that's right. why we called it dark. We use the phrase dark matter and dark energy, but it, to refer to more than 95% of the earth, of the energy density in the universe, which has never been directly detected in a laboratory. So 95% of the universe remains a complete mystery to science. You know, I think it's important to just remind ourselves of how much darkness carries a vast presence here. It's almost yeah. infinite because it is the unknown. It. it has infinite potential. Yes. <laughs> yes. Everything we see arises from it. And yes, as we, as we integrate this, we become better. And then we move towards, like we were saying earlier, this, heaven on earth, you could say. And I want to tell you about a concept that you might find interesting. It's kind of called the octave evolution concept. Okay. And it states that the yin and the yang, the dark and the lights are fixed points like a law. But as we evolve as humans, as we raise our vibration collectively, we will then hit a new octave of evolution and how we define dark and how we define light will be radically different, much like a musical scale. So you have like, you know, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, you have low C and you have high C. And low C, you could say, is the dark and high C is the light. But as we move an octave up, there's still low C and high C, but low C is what we used to consider lights. And high C is now this new place way up here. And if we keep doing that, that's when we truly reach ascension. It doesn't uh, mitigate any natural law. It doesn't do anything to the dark except for redefine it. What do you think about that? I think it's a fascinating theory. And rather than go directly into it, I'll share a couple of things that have arisen in me as I was listening to it. One is just that I'm a real um, advocate for the natural world as our greatest teacher. And I want to just point out, because you mentioned the yin and the yang, that in Taoism and the Taoist symbol for yin and yang, contains and shows that within the dark is a dot of light and within the light is a dot of dark. 
And there is no darkness without light, nor light without dark, that they're existing in sacred partnership. And when we look to nature, we see, oh, the dark night contains the seed of dawn, and dawn leads us to the daylight, and the day contains the seed of dusk, and it's a continual spectrum and cycle. So there is a way I would, um, for me, sometimes the notion of uh, ascension or ascending up to something, to me, for me personally, just because of my practice being a very earth-based practice, there's something I use the phrase waking down into our bodies and into our earth connection, waking down to the already existing state of enlightenment, we might say. <laughs> but the, the point here is that um, for me, when we rest in shared presence, everything is welcome and has its place, the light and dark, the full spectrum rather than one being that we still need to get away from it, so to speak. And I just think it's important to to mention that because it can be slippery. And I'd be curious what you said about this. When we think that awareness is not already awake, but we need to get to, or one day we might get to a more, uh, the place, you with me? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. just that the reason I'm saying it is because you look at, the spectrum of behavior of humans on planet earth. And some of the behavior is atrocious, like true atrocities. I don't even really want to name them because they're so disturbing. But if you think about the yep. most disturbing behavior of humans on planet earth, we don't want that anymore. That has to be transcended. There has to be some movement to where that just doesn't even exist to where we're on this planet. And it's, it's, it's such a high frequency that earth exists in such a high frequency that that type of behavior, that even that manifesting just doesn't happen because of the frequency that we're in. And so you use the word, it has to be transcended. Maybe we could gently shift. Uh, it has to be healed. And that ah. can come through transcending, through transmuting, through embracing, through meeting with compassion, through befriending, right? There are other motions aside from uh, ascending from it. Some of them are more about embracing it. And just because I come from Zen Buddhist path, remembering how to embrace everything on the spectrum is a big part of practice. And then we find out, oh my gosh, what I thought was my deepest demon just healed completely because I finally met it with love. So you and I are saying similar things with different language, sure. but I think that different language is important and um, to speak from our, our own tongues is important here. Yeah. Yes. And I just know that as a spiritual person, that stuff really hurts my heart to know that that's happening yes. to my fellow humans all over the world in various forms that hurts as a spiritual person. I want those people to be healed. I want that to go away. I don't know how else to say that, but to me that, that, that entails some sort of a process. Absolutely. A process of healing, okay. right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just emphasizing that there are many ways that healing can take place sometimes just by sitting in meditation resting in presence, nothing fancier than that. We invite into our hearts an aspect of incredibly dense energy 
either from within ourselves or something we're experiencing in our world that finally, because it's being welcomed into spacious presence, or I would even say welcome into the divine darkness, uh, a mothering field of acceptance heals right then and there. <sighs> and then that dissipates the frequency. There you go. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Wow. I love the way you think about things. I love your book. I love the way we're engaging this topic because it's helping people understand things and not demonize the darkness. Because I think there is just too much demonization of it. This isn't the first time the things that we're talking about have come up in uh, our episodes and the various circles that I talk with. This is something that seems to be bubbling up in various uh sectors like we really is so that to me means it's very important that we engage our darkness and start to uh become more in darkened you could say i'm completely with you and it's been really beautiful as the book has come out just to hear from people of so many different walks of life who this is speaking to and as i mentioned to you earlier i don't remember if we had started recording it also hearing from other writers and teachers who feel called by the spirit of darkness to say hey you know these are times of such unknown let's look at what the medicine is instead of how can we turn away from or numb out to mm. there, there's so much um, pain you were speaking to it just a few minutes ago so much suffering of our world in our world it's unfathomable and yet when we allow ourselves to with compassion turn towards and be with and be present with and uh, sit beside uh, all who are suffering including those suffering aspects of ourself there is a great healing that can occur. And there's also a, I would suggest, ancestral healing that comes from being willing to feel our grief and to metabolize the grief from generation upon generation. So one of the teachings of the book is that folks, our bodies are alchemical vessels. And to be more clear, our body minds integrated. In Western cosmology, too often body and mind are separated and people tend to live in their head with the thinking mind as center of gravity. But your body mind is an alchemical vessel. And again, as I said before, a vessel of relational intelligence. So the more we're willing to consciously grieve in these times, to consciously grieve the harm that's been caused the violence that we see, the loss of living systems that's already occurred through climate crisis, the more there is a metabolization of that grief, rather than it continuing to weigh heavy, it transmutes into exactly the energy and love we need to remember who and what we are. Yes. Yeah? And heal yeah. the world, yeah. which seems to be the mission of all spiritual people, whether they show up in different ways, the common yeah. thread, it yeah. seems like we're all trying to heal this planet, whether we're star seeds or however we show up. It just seems like that is the, the goal right now in humanity's history that we need intense healing and people contacting you. It seems it's just everyone finally perhaps being honest with themselves and, and realizing yeah. that the only way that we're going to have a healed world is to finally just be honest and, and fix the things that need to be fixed, engage the things that need to be engaged. There's no more pushing away. It doesn't seem yes. like there's much time left for that. 
It, it doesn't seem like there is. And isn't it a relief for there to be more and more honesty? And just for people who are listening to reflect, how freeing does honesty feel? Uh, in my second book, Relational Mindfulness, there's a whole chapter about transparency and honesty. But honesty is contagious. Uh, honesty connects us. Honesty takes courage and risk taking sometimes. But it's so much more freeing and relieving than um the alternative. <laughs> yes. And it's okay to be honest because everything is infinite love. All spiritual practices, if you look at their core, they all kind of say the same thing, that it's all based in love. It's infinite love, non-judgment. The divine is with you in every second, every millisecond of your life, every thought, the completion of the divine is with you. So it's okay to be honest because the information's already out there. The, there is no judgment. There's only love. Thank you. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other things too uh, that you talk about in your book that are so amazing. I really enjoyed the marketplace mentality concept that really helped me understand kind of how modern society relates to their world. We're consuming everything's kind of like in this very kind of like divided, segmented way and how we process reality. Yeah. So it's not only that we're perceiving at when we're caught in separate self as subject object, but often also through marketplace mentality, which has just become ingrained uh, following our disconnect from the natural world so that we see life as something for me to consume, <sighs> uh, earth as resources for us to consume, and that it translates you know, even into places where we don't realize it does, like um, people might notice self-judgment, which as an ex can be an expression of marketplace mentality. I'm judging my um, uh, ability to achieve in the marketplace and I'm falling up short or marketplace mentality can even slide into something like romance and dating. I mean, pay attention to what's running the mind when this subject object thing is in place. And I talk about, you know, I learned to meditate the same time. I was 19 when I took on a daily practice and it was the same time I learned uh, organic farming and spent many years as an organic gardener and farmer and recognized these similarities in the practices and recognized that there's a way that the modern world is very focused on product over process. This is another expression of marketplace mentality. <laughs> <laughs> and so just to use a, you know, a metaphor, if we look at something like organic gardening, okay, organic regenerative farming, we see that everything is about the process. When we look to conventional farming, we see that it's all about getting to the product, the biggest, the fastest, the cheapest, and I'm gonna justify causing harm to the soil, depleting the soil, using chemicals to try to get to the right product. But in organic farming, it's quite the opposite. We're not even growing vegetables, we're growing soil and soil is a living process. And we would never uh, make a move that would compromise the living process of soil. So that's similar in a way to the internal process, <laughs> the path, and remembering to just catch ourselves when we get product focused <laughs> and really come back to 
to process. We're all a living process. Yes. I yeah. uh, was an organic uh, cannabis grower for several years of my life. And I, I did a lot of that nurturing the microbiology. It's an incredible, Great. incredible art form. But um, is, isn't it telling though, that the product you're saying we're focused on the product and not the process, but the product turns to dust all the time. The material yeah. product, whatever it is. Now, of course, we need food to survive and the various things. But just in a very general kind of ethereal sense, the product turns to dust. It's material. It turns to dust. The process is what sticks with us in our soul's evolution as we reincarnate. And that's something I believe. Maybe you don't believe that out there. But um as we reincarnate, we integrate the processes of our soul's journey. And that's what we take with us. That's the only thing that matters. The process is the only thing that matters. The product doesn't even exist. I love your passion about this because <laughs> it is pretty true. Each of us one day will reach the end of our life and we won't be taking with us any of our <laughs> items, any of our money we may have made, any of the products, but we will be taking with us the process we've cultivated. Yes. You know, the energy of the it, experience lives on. You've got it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I like inviting people to consider in spiritual practice that in every moment we're practicing something like we're metaphorically building a muscle. Maybe we're building the muscle of stress or building the muscle of impatience Ooh. or building the muscle, Damn. right? Or building the muscle of presence of letting go of open spacious awareness and that we take with us, wow. that with us. that's really you know? powerful that's powerful because that gets you to think about how we're just feeding all these things and what do you want to feed like what you are you working it. out what are, what are you what what muscle are you exercising here yeah and how beautiful though we have so much um recognition today uh so much through the challenges we're facing I think a, a collective fire, inner fire building to really be conscious about what we are choosing to feed. And then all of these supports, even like this online podcast, right? <laughs> support systems for the path that are easier to access than ever before. Ever before. It's mind yeah. blowing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. 44, you know, I, I had one foot in the analog world and one foot in the digital world. So I've got to see it all. And, and what we have now, the instant music, every album, being able to talk to anyone around the world instantaneously with video and clear audio, it's just shocking and, and mind blowing. And I think a lot of the, the, the Gen Zers and the new humans on this planet kind of don't realize <laughs> the blessings that they have right now. I am with you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what is the mindful living revolution? Because this is something that you're also about. You have this beautiful book, luminous darkness, but this is something you are passionate about as well. This mindful living revolution. Sure. This is a nonprofit that I run and it's the field through which I offer my teachings, my work. It's a global community, a beautiful community that's formed organically, just like the community of listeners and people who you engage with uh, magically and organically has formed over time. And so if people committed to practice, to walking their talk to, I would say, both the inner and outer work at the same time. So to recognizing that 
engaged meditation, which means not just meditation on the cushion, that's one piece of practice, but using our daily lives as laboratory for waking up and learning to live in the state of meditation is the path that this holds personal, interpersonal, transpersonal, ecological, societal, mystical impact, that there are so many dimensions <laughs> to the impact of showing up embodied and that we wake up together. So um, wow. not in isolation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah I th <laughs> well, I think that's happening right now. We are waking up together. There's so much going on. Some people would say that it's the second coming of the Christ consciousness, that that consciousness, whatever it is, the Buddha nature, the Krishna consciousness, that that's welling up right now, that that's actually happening in this time. Well, we could also simply acknowledge, and this is for listeners to just consider with where you are in your own um, presence in any moment that we choose, make the conscious choice to soften the mind of separation and rest in shared presence, awareness is already awake. Um, we consciousness is always already here. This divine darkness, it's the backdrop of every moment we experience. Remember the field from which everything arises. So we need to, as we look at what are we feeding, remember to spend time in the divine darkness, to spend time in that field of just being. As you said earlier in this podcast conversation, yes, there's a lot of um, an energy of speeding up. And at the same time, to remember to just be still and surrender to this being that already is awake. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And do you think that with psychedelic drugs and plant medicines now being legalized, it's completely decriminalized in Oregon. And now they did this in Colorado and they're promoting psychedelics. There's actually the first uh, psilocybin mushroom dispensary in Portland, Oregon has just opened up recently. So this is happening. So do you think a lot of this welling up and people being honest and all the things we talked about, that there's some sort of correlation with the fact that these very powerful mind enhancing and, and mind activating substances are about to be mainstream, that somehow that the, that there's a correlation there because that the explosion is happening. DMT, all forms of mushrooms, ibogaine, uh, mescaline, all of these things are now going to be very, very uh, free and open. I hear you. Here's something I would, I would say when the student is ready, the teacher arrives <laughs> When the student is ready, the teacher arrives. And there are so many pathways home from sitting meditation to conscious movement and dance to tantric dream work to plant medicine. Uh, there are so many pathways for me living in partnership with nature means being open and humble and curious in deep listening uh, as a state of being but being willing to ask for support for the healing that we have each 
incarnated for. There's healing that needs to happen through each of our family lines, our ancestral lines, our collective. And there are so many roads now to that healing, including the forms of plant medicine and psychedelics that you just named. So yes, when the student is ready, the teacher <laughs> arrives. And I'll say one more thing about sure. that. You know, if people are going to be caught in sun shining, the healing's not going to happen at all. If you approach plant medicine through sun shining, you're just going to want to chase an experience. You're just going to become someone who's looking for a, a exotic experience. Yeah, That's experiments, enhancements. You got it. That's not it. That's spiritual bypassing. If you want to show up to the work, perhaps even through plant medicine, you still need to come back down to your body, to the moment, to your feeling, sensing, sensitive, sentient <laughs> existence and feel and be with all that arises. There will be pain that arises. There will be beauty and love to be with the full spectrum as part of that healing. But we got to roll up our sleeves to do the work. We can't chase experiences. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you for that advice. I think that people need to hear that because all of this yeah. is coming. I mean, it's right around the corner. 2024 is going to be a totally different world than what we're living in right now. But I do want to thank you for being here, Eden. This has been an incredible conversation. I, I love what we've talked about. It's been so powerful. And in Darkman, this is something that we all need to focus on now. You've heard Eden talk about this. So you need to focus on this more. So I want to tell people where to find you, Eden. Go first to DeborahEdenToll.com. And I'm going to spell this. It's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-E-D-E-N-T-U-L-L.com. DeborahEdenToll.com has a lot of her information there. She has weekly meditations that you can be a part of. She has retreats coming up, some of which are remote. So you can be anywhere in the world and you can participate in these retreats. And she has three books. The first of which is the one that we just covered, her newest book, Luminous Darkness. And she also has relational mindfulness a handbook for deepening our connections with ourselves, each other, and the planet, and The Natural Kitchen, your guide to a sustainable food revolution. So all of those things are available. If you're feeling this information, you're feeling this frequency, and you want to engage with it more, go to these places, get the books. They're amazing. And Eden, 146 countries. We have so many listeners and so many people are feeling inspired from this conversation right now. Is there anything you would like to leave our audience with as we close this conversation? Well, first, I just want to thank you, Jake. And I felt your, <laughs> your big heart and spirit of generosity uh, that you bring to this throughout our conversation. And also love that this is a cross-pollination you know, uh, we have both some shared experiences and visions between us and some differences in pathway. And it's so beautiful to get to cross pollinate. We need more of this. Yes, yeah, definitely more cross pollination. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last thing I would offer is just for people who want to begin to investigate this for yourself, both to spend more time in the physical darkness and even with eyes closed, just beginning to sense if darkness is not the absence of light, what is it the presence of? 
and to just let your experience guide you. And number two, to acknowledge that we all do carry conditioned fear of the unknown and of uncertainty. So can we become more willing to meet the mystery with curiosity and reverence rather than fear? I believe that that medicine is needed so deeply to help us through our healing and journey at this time. So thank you all for listening. Yes, thank you. And fear is the absence of faith. Have faith in the mystery. Fear is false evidence appearing real. Yes, definitely. So beautifully said. Thank you, Eden, again for being here. Please hold through the outro music. And everyone, my God, what my goddess, whatever, the mystery. I love it all. What a great episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.